Well, I, I want to start off by, by asking a question. Uh, and so you can just sort of answer by raising your hands, but just kind of a poll here. H how many at some point in your life believed in Santa Claus? Right? Anyone ever grow up believing in Santa Claus? Okay, a decent number. Uh, how about uh, the Tooth Fairy? Anyone? Tooth Fairy? Parents put things, okay, yeah. Easter Bunny, anyone? Okay, not, not as many, I didn't think so. All, all right, so here's the, here's the next question then. Anyone still believe in any of those things? <laughs> exactly, right? None of us do, right? We, we, we grow up and we grow out of those kinds of things. We, we don't believe in the, any of those silly little stories anymore, right? Now, depending on, on where you grew up or when, you probably heard different fairy tales told, different little stories, little traditions that get passed along, right? My family has a German background. Germans had lots of fairy tales that were attached to them, right? They had Hansel and Gretel. A very disturbing story if you actually think about what is being told, right? Or, or maybe Little Red Riding Hood or Goldilocks and the Three Bears or maybe something like um, uh, Humpty Dumpty, right? All these, these little stories that, that teach us lessons, right? That's what they were designed to do. They were designed to teach kids little lessons so they could understand, right? Don't go wandering off in the forest. Don't trust strangers. Always make sure you have a way back home and all this kind of stuff. So, it does seem to me there's a lot more children being eaten in these stories than is strictly necessary, but, but nonetheless, that, that's often what goes on. We get all these stories, these fairy tales that come up. I, I think modern-day fairy tales are really Disney movies, right? They're, they're the same kind of thing. Little fun stories make believe that they kind of teach us a moral to it. Things like, you know, the value of courage, curiosity, or, or love, things like this. And it's nothing new to the world. We, we've had these kind of stories for a long time. Even back in, in ancient Greek, they had stories, things like Hercules or, or Achilles, or if you're familiar with Aesop's fables, right? All these little stories that were intended to, to teach children a little lesson, right? And, and th these stories all have a number of things that, you would, uh, th that are in common, right? A number of common themes that run throughout them. They're trying to teach something. Right? Usually there's something kind of uh, miraculous, something supernatural magic that's involved. There, there's a witch or, or animals are, are talking. Right? Usually they wrap up very nicely into a neat little bow and, and you know, something like, and they lived happily ever after. But as we grow up, we, we stop actually believing that these are real stories. We start, we start believing that no, they're, they're just a work of fiction designed to teach us something and so we're not really worried about it. And I think for that very same reason, a lot of people approach the Bible and they say, well, I grew up. I, I don't believe in those little fairy tales, those nice little stories anymore. That, that's great and all if you want to believe that, but that's not the truth. Right? And, and the truth is, the Bible can seem like that sometimes. A lot of the stories do have a point. It's trying to teach us something. There are some supernatural elements, even talking animals that come up in the Bible. And the truth is, it does end with a nice little bow at the, at the very end. But I think that's why we're oftentimes very confused around this issue. You know, is the Bible actually something that you can trust? Were there really ten plagues? Come on, surely that's just some sort of natural disaster. You don't really believe Jesus actually walked on water, do you? Right, a virgin gave birth, come on, we know how that happens, right? Why would you actually believe any of these stories? 
Surely they're just fairy tales, things to teach little children, but have nothing to do with reality. And maybe that's exactly what you're thinking this morning. Maybe that's the doubt or the question that's been rolling through your mind for some time. And that's really what we want to talk about this morning. Can we trust what the Bible tells us, or is it just a fairy tale? Right? Is it just a nice story to get you through the day, but it's not actually real? Why do Christians believe this? Why do we trust the Bible? And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to ask a number of questions, right? When we started off this series, I said, we are going to learn to doubt our doubts, right? That, that is, we're going to question the questions that come up. Really, what I mean by all that is we're just going to dive into it. We want to actually investigate what does the Bible have to say? How do we come to know any of this? And so we're going to ask a number of questions, and the first is really just, what does the Bible actually say? What does the Bible say about itself? And so we're going to look at that. We want to ask, well, is there any evidence for it? Is there anything that would lead us to that conclusion? And then finally, we want to ask, how do we respond? So if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter is right near the end of our Bibles in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you have a Bible or, or an app or whatever, you can find your way there. It'll also be on the screen behind me. But I want us to start off and I want us to ask the question, well, what does the Bible actually say about itself? What, what does the Bible have to say? What does it claim? So we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and we're going to start in verse 16. So here is God's word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Well, that's as far as we're going to read this morning. Would you join me just in a word of prayer? Father, we, we thank you that you speak to us, that you don't leave us to try and figure these things out by ourselves, but that you actually come, that you speak, that you instruct, and that you tell us things. Father, this morning as we look into your word, Father, I pray, would you reveal who you are into our hearts? Father, would we come to genuinely trust what you have to say, but would we come to trust in your son, Jesus? Father, we ask that you would be at work in our study and in our application of your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, well, the question we're going to ask here is, what does the Bible say about itself? And that might seem like a bit of an odd place to start, but let me say this is actually quite an important thing to, to get out right off the bat, because the truth is, if the Bible doesn't say anything, or if it just says that, you know what, it's just a work of fiction, we can pretty much stop right there, right? If the Bible tells us this is just a made-up story, well, okay, we're done. We don't have to go any further. It's if the Bible makes a different claim. 
If the Bible claims to be something more, then we're going to have to actually understand that. And before we can agree or disagree with it, let's at least understand what does the Bible claim for itself. All right? So, so if you have your, your Bible still open, you can look back with me at the text. Verse 16. This is Peter writing. He, he's one of the disciples, one of the guys who followed Jesus. He was also one of the leaders of the early church. And he writes this, and he's telling the, his audience, his writers, the people he's writing this letter to, about what the Bible is. Verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Pause there. All right. Peter, right off the bat, he recognizes the fact that many people are going to assume that what he's talking about is made up, right? He, he's living in, in the Greco-Roman world. They had all kinds of myths. They even had stories about gods coming down to earth and living among them, you know, acting like humans and getting into all sorts of mischief. And so Peter is acutely aware that some people off the top are going to assume he's just making this up. And so he writes and he says, I, I want you to understand this isn't some myth, some story that's just made up, right? Verse 16, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, right? Now, here is one of the central claims the Bible makes, and certainly the New Testament, it's written by eyewitnesses, people who are talking about what they themselves have experienced. It's not as if Peter is coming and saying, you know, I heard this story. It was from my cousin's aunt's brother-in-law, twice removed. We met at a pub one night, and after a few drinks, he told me this really interesting story. No. He's saying, this is actually what I experienced, right? Peter, Peter walked. He, he was with Jesus for over three years, Right? This was a large part of his life. He was following him and actually seeing him. And so what he's writing, what he's preaching about is what he himself witnessed, experienced, and saw, heard Jesus teaching. And so right off the bat, we need to see the claim that, that Peter and the Bible is making is it's written by eyewitnesses. The gospel, the accounts of Jesus' life are, are people who actually saw him alive. Verse 17, he continues, he says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, what on earth is Peter talking about here? Okay, he, he, is, he is relating a, a story. And so if you're unfamiliar with what's called the, the Mount of Transfiguration, it's a story from the Gospels. You can read about it, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. All right, they, they all contain this story. It's Jesus goes up this mountain. He takes with him three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Right, this little group, and he, he goes off to what's going to be sort of a spiritual retreat for them. They go up this mountain, and as they get to the top, Jesus' appearance starts to change. Suddenly, he, he's starting to shine forward with this, this light, and as they're up there and trying to figure out what's going on, suddenly two more men are there, Elijah and Moses, right? These two massive figures from the Old Testament, and they're talking with Jesus, and there he's standing wrapped in the glory of God, just shining forward, and the disciples are looking at this. They have no idea what are they seeing, 
And Peter stumbles around trying to figure out what exactly he's supposed to do in this situation. And then out of heaven, they hear this voice booming, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right? This is the kind of experience that, that changes the way you see someone drastically. Right? I, I don't know if any of you have ever you know, had an experience and you suddenly are seeing someone in a brand new light. Right, for me, this was, this was doing gymnastics with my wife. Right, when we were first dating, uh, she was actually coaching gymnastics. She had competed for many years. She was teaching, and so we went to this drop-in, and we could actually do this uh, stuff together. And all of a sudden, I realized when she's doing back handsprings across the floor, wow, actually, that, that, that changes a lot of how I'm seeing you. Right, my wife is a very amazing woman, all right? But it changed the way that I viewed what she did, what she had accomplished. Well, this is exactly what Peter is doing, but in a thousand times more. Peter's saying, up there, I, I realized something different about the guy I was with. This was no ordinary person. This was God himself who was Jesus. This wasn't just any guy. And so Peter records this. He says, verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice. This wasn't something he had just kind of dreamed up. This was an actual audible voice he heard, and it changed the rest of his life. What Peter is going to preach is what he himself has seen, heard, and experienced. So let's just say at the outset, the Bible is written by eyewitnesses. Now, for those of you who are familiar, you know the Bible has a lot of different books, right? There's 66 different books in the Bible. There's around 40 different authors. It's written over a time period of about 1,500 years, and there's all kinds of different genres in it, right? There's history, there's poetry, the New Testament. We're going to find letters. We're going to find gospels. Those are the actual accounts of Jesus' life. And so I'm by no means saying that poetry is some kind of eyewitness account. No, Peter's making a claim about the Gospels, that is, the account of Jesus' life. And he's saying they are written by eyewitness statements. Even, even Luke, right? Luke's Gospel, you might know, it wasn't written by an eyewitness. And so here is how he begins the book of Luke. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Uh, it seemed good also to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. See, Luke here makes a very clear claim about what he is doing. He, he was doing the reporter thing. He was going out. He was interviewing all of the different eyewitnesses, talking to the disciples, talking to people who had seen Jesus and actually witnessed what he was doing. And he's putting it together so that we can understand, so that we can actually have confidence about what has happened, about what has taken place. The Bible, and certainly when it comes to Jesus, is claiming to be a historical account written by eyewitnesses. It was even meant to be investigated, confirmed, and double-checked, right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about Jesus and the resurrection, says, then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, right? Why does Paul include this? 
because he intends that people hearing him, receiving that letter, could actually go out and start checking with people. Did you actually see him rise? Yes, I actually saw him after he died and rose again. That was what was intended, right? The accounts of Jesus' life were written as historical accounts. So why should we trust the Bible? Well, we should trust the Bible because it was written by people who actually saw what happened. That's, that's just the, the baseline of what is being claimed. But actually, the Bible has more. The Bible's claiming more than just saying, hey, I, these are people who actually saw it. L- look back at verse 19. Verse 19, Peter writes, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, okay, this is a confusing kind of sentence. Let me make it very simple. He's saying the Bible is a lamp in a dark place. It's a guide. It it shines light. It can help you navigate through life. But, But notice what he says right there at the beginning of that verse. He says, and we have the prophetic word, the Bible, more fully confirmed. More than what? It's actually more than his experience. Here's the thing, I forget things all the time. I I forget things, my memory fades, experiences, eventually I I lose all the details and, and the impact begins to fade. But what Peter is saying is that what's better than our experience is actually that the Bible has said it, so why? Why would that be the case? Verse 20, he says, knowing this first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, here's the reason why Peter has such confidence in what the Bible has to say. He's, why? Because the ultimate author is God himself. That God has actually inspired, he has actually written these things down for us. So it's more than just saying, well, this is what I experienced. Actually, the claim there is, this is what God has inspired for us, right? They are God's words to us. Peter uses this analogy of almost like a a boat on, on water, and the boat is being moved around as the current moves. That's how he's saying the writers were moved, inspired, guided to write by the Spirit. Listen to Acts chapter 1. This is actually Peter preaching his very first sermon. He says, brothers, the scripture, the Bible, had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. You see how Peter puts those things together? The scriptures, the Bible, had a human author. It was David in this case, writing one of the Psalms. And so he's saying, yes, David is the one who wrote it, but ultimately it was God who was speaking through him. Now, this doesn't mean that that God is just using, you know, people like some sort of microphone or robot or, or something like that. Actually, no, when we come to the Bible, we see different styles. We see authors, you know, say things in slightly different ways, and yet what we are going to say is ultimately the authority comes from God himself. He is the one who inspired these words. That's why we talk about the Bible being authoritative, inerrant. Why? Because it's God's word. This is what he has for us. And so here is really what the Bible claims. The Bible claims that it is uh, 
the result of what people have seen, experienced, eyewitness accounts, and that ultimately God is the author of it all. It is his words, and so we can have confidence in it. But you might say, okay, but you haven't really proven your point yet, right? Because that's very much a circular argument. You just proved the Bible to say the Bible is true. Right? That, that, that's like the definition of something, of a circular argument. Yes, I believe the Bible. Why? Well, because the Bible says I should believe the Bible, so I believe the Bible. So I, wait a minute. Right? We're just doing that. And it's true. Actually, I'm not even going to deny that that's exactly what it is, but I will say, actually, so is every ultimate authority we hold to. If you're going to say, no, the, the only reason we can ever know something is if it makes logical sense. It's logically consistent. Why? Well, because it's logically consistent to come to that conclusion, right? If it's reason, why, why do you believe reason is always going to be the guide to understanding? Well, it's because it's most reasonable to assume so, or, or maybe if we're going to say it's our experience, why do you think your experience is? Well, it's because everything I've experienced has led me to that conclusion, right? Ultimately, whenever we're coming to a, a ground level ultimate authority, we're going to find some kind of cyclical argument, and in fact, it should. If the Bible is our authority, it should tell us that. So maybe the better question is, what other evidence do we have? Is, is there anything else that would affirm, that would confirm what the Bible has to say? Is there anything that would say, you know what, actually th there is some credibility to what's being written? And, and here is where actually we have a wealth of evidence. Here's where we have a lot of things to say. Perhaps the easiest place, well, let's just start with archeology. span right? This is an ancient book, so certainly archaeology, the study of past times, should tell us something about the Bible. In fact, we have a lot of things. We've found places the Bible has talked about, right? Places like Jerusalem, Nazareth, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Rome, right? It's not even under discussion. We know these places existed. We know that what the Bible was saying about them is true. It's not really even up for a debate, we found a number of the kings that the Bible has talked about. King Cyrus in Persia. We found a bunch of the, uh, the Jewish kings that existed, Hezekiah being one of them. In fact, if you listen to uh, 2 Kings 20, 2 Kings 20, uh, verse 20 actually says, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah, all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Right, it's this kind of wrap-up statement, and it just kind of mentions the fact that, hey, Hezekiah actually built some of these conduits, these, these tunnels that brought water into the city. The truth is, we, we've found those tunnels. We've seen Hezekiah's tunnels. You can actually go walk through them if you go to Jerusalem. Right? There's a bunch of examples in which, actually, the Bible, what it's talking about is proved to be true. We've just simply found it. But you might say, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. Right? The Bible talks about different places and times. Sure, it could get that information. That's nothing really that special. The Bible talks about a lot of miracles. There's a lot of things that, that the Bible is claiming to have happened that are pretty supernatural, that are pretty crazy to actually believe in. So, so do you have any evidence for those? Well, on this one, why don't we just start with the main one, really the big one? It's Jesus that he died and rose again. Really, everything that we believe from the Bible is rooted in this. Paul says if Jesus didn't raise, everything we have is nothing, right? Christianity, what we believe, rises and falls on Jesus dying and rising again. So what about that one? 
Do we have any evidence that would point us there? Well, again, I, actually we do. So we have the Bible itself, which is quite an amazing document, right? We have four accounts of Jesus' life, four different writings from eyewitnesses about what happened to him written in a very short time frame after Jesus died and rose again, right? It's actually quite remarkable when you think about all of history. So, for instance, take Julius Caesar, right? Julius Caesar is one of the first uh, Caesars in Rome, and we know about him because we have found things that are written about him. But the earliest that we have found are hundreds of years after he lived versus the Bible where we have accounts decades after he lived. Actually, the scope is entirely different. The Bible is quite a remarkable book. But you might say, okay, but what about outside of the Bible? Surely someone wrote something. And the answer is yes. A man by the name of Josephus he was a Jewish historian hired by the Romans. Hey, come explain what's going on with the Jews. We have no idea what's happening. And so he comes in and he starts to explain. Here's the history of the Jewish people. Here's what's going on in Rome. And so he eventually comes to Jesus. This is what he writes. He says, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men uh, as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day." Josephus was not a believer. He was not a Christian. He was simply a historian who recognized the fact that this man, Jesus, made such a massive impact on the world that the church was born out of what he did, out of what he taught, that it would be impossible to actually record history without at least even mentioning him. He, he's not even debating all the miraculous things. He's not perhaps confirming all of them, but that is what people taught, even back when he wrote just a few, well, maybe about a hundred years after Jesus. And yet what he brings up is probably one of the most important points when it comes to Jesus' death and resurrection, and that is actually the changed lives of the disciples who followed him. Right? Jesus had these guys who were following around with him all the time, and they suddenly go from being fishermen, uneducated laborers, now to ardent defenders of the faith. Even Peter himself, he was this coward, right, who, who didn't even want to say that he, he knew Jesus before Pilate, and then suddenly, later, he goes before Nero and claims he's a Christian, and he is crucified for his faith. Something happened to change his life completely. In fact, the same is true with all of the other, uh, all of the other disciples. They, they suddenly went through a massive change, and people have come up with all kinds of explanations. Well, it's hysteria, it's, it's mass hallucinations, it's grief, or, or perhaps they're just liars, really good liars. Yeah, the truth is, all of those experiences fade away after time, and hardly anyone would be willing to actually die on behalf of it. They gained no money, they gained no power, they gained nothing, yet they did not turn back from proclaiming that Jesus rose again. 
I, I find it interesting the way Chuck Colson makes this point. He comes at it from a very interesting perspective. You might know that name. He was involved with the Watergate scandal back in the 70s. He, he was convicted and um, ended up becoming a Christian. This is what he had to say. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I think he's right. Have you ever tried to keep a lie? Like when someone's actually coming after you, someone's saying, I don't think so, and they're really pushing you. Have you ever tried to do that? It's incredibly hard. That's what they train RCMP and border guards. They can push people. It only takes a little bit, and most people break. You're telling me that 12 people would go to their death for something that's a lie? See, it's just a fact that these men's lives changed, and actually that the church was founded because of it. That the church even continued to grow through persecution and death and to continue to reach out with the news that Jesus had risen. But I think we can even go further. See, we look into history and we can see these men's lives had changed, but the truth is we can probably talk about this room here and how many of us have had our lives changed by Jesus Christ. Through reading the word of God and actually coming to know him, our lives have actually changed, that we have been transformed because of what Jesus has done. Romans 8.16 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There is this internal witness of the Holy Spirit that tells us actually that what we're reading is true, that our lives are changed by what Jesus has done. So whether we actually look at the Bible's own witness, we look to archaeology or history to confirm all of the details, we can look into the lives of the men who followed Jesus or even into our own church. We find the Bible is no fairy tale, but it is the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. So that leads us then to the last and certainly the most important question we have to ask. What do we do with this? What do we do now if the Bible is in fact true, if Jesus did die and rise again, what do we do with that information? Look back with me at our text one last time. See, Peter is writing this text not simply to say, I want you to believe what, what the Bible says. He's writing it because he is going to tell them about Jesus coming back. Verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is talking about that one day Jesus is coming back that we are actually going to be standing before God, that we are going to come face to face, and actually there's going to be a judgment on that day. Peter says, I want you to be prepared for that day. Right? You could even go so far as to say that is what the Bible is all about, about preparing us for when we stand before God. So what do we do now? 
If the Bible is true, how should we respond? I'm going to say there's three things we can do. The first, place your faith in Jesus. See, the Bible tells us Jesus didn't come just simply to preach. He didn't come just simply to to do some really interesting things and then die. He actually came so that we could come to know God. He came to die on a cross, to stand in our place so that anyone who would trust in him would be saved. That's actually why he came. That's why the Bible is here for us, so that we can come to believe and trust in him, that we can actually come and have peace with God, that God actually loved us so much that he sent Jesus to us so that we would not perish but have eternal life. So the first thing we need to do that we are called to do, would you respond to Jesus in faith? second thing that I think we're called to do is to do what the disciples did, to go out. If this is true, if we actually believe that what the Bible is talking about is true, it should change the way that we act. It should mean we want to go out and we actually want to tell people about the good news of what Jesus has done, that we should actually have our lives transformed and radically altered so that we can show others what has happened, what Jesus has done. And see, that's the third point, actually, that our lives ought to look different. Listen to how Paul writes to his uh, student, Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writing, which are able to make you wise for salvation through, uh, through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, there's a lot in that passage, but let me just summarize it. Paul comes to Timothy, his student, and says, here's what I want you to do with the Bible. Believe in Jesus through it. Continue in it and then be transformed by it. Why? Because it's God's own words to you. God breathed them out for our good. See, if the Bible is true, it should actually change our lives. And if I can just be a little bit self-critical here for a moment, I think a lot of times the reason that people don't believe that the Bible is true is because we as a church don't always live like the Bible is true. We, we sometimes live like the Bible's a fairy tale. Like it's just a good story that we like to hear every once in a while or once a week. Can I challenge you? If you believe that the Bible is true, if you're a Christian here, would you strive to be reproved by the word of God? Would you strive to be corrected by what the Bible has to say? Not because I'm saying it, but because you genuinely believe this is God's word for you. Would you actually allow your life to be transformed? And that's probably going to mean we got to confess some sins. They actually have to change some of the patterns in our life because they're not actually helping us follow Jesus. They're just leading us away from it. I think sometimes we have such a difficult time showing what Jesus has done because our lives aren't changed. So would we strive for that? 
Holy Spirit, work in my life so that I might be more and more conformed to the pattern that I see in your word, that you might see in me what Jesus is like. See, for all of us, what the Bible calls us to do is to deal with him. Calls us to deal with Jesus. He really lived. He really did those miracles. He walked on the water. He healed the sick. He even cast demons out of people. He really went to the cross. He really died. And he really rose again. So that anyone who would trust in him might be saved. Would you come to know Jesus today? That is open for each and every one of us. So this morning, we're going to worship together. We're going to respond in singing and praise. But I want to invite you, either in just the quietness of your own heart, or come find me, come talk to me while the band is playing, or after the service, I want to come and help you. I want you to know this Jesus, this one who has been revealed to us in the Word of God, so that we actually might glorify him, that we might praise him together, that we might know and love him. Let's pray together. Father, we are so, so thankful that you speak to us. We are thankful that you don't leave us to ourselves, but that you actually come, that you, that you transform our lives by your word. But Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent your very son to die on the cross in our place, to take the punishment for our sins that we couldn't deal with, to actually allow us to come to know you that we might have eternal life. Father, I pray would you be transforming our lives, transforming our hearts so that we would come to know and love you above everything. Father, I pray, might we be a church transformed by your word, conformed to the image of your son, that we might proclaim with everything we have the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your name. Amen.